Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can do that on the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. You can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. And if you like what you hear and want to help support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. Also, if you wish to support Anthology with your wallet, (laughs) there's a button on AnthologyPod.com and a link in the show notes of this episode. Every donation made using the donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running. So it's greatly appreciated. And on that note, thank you to Molly W. in Indianapolis for her donation this week. I really appreciate this support. And uh, finally, if you're in Indianapolis, my friends and I at The Obsessive Viewer are hosting an event on October 14th at the Irving Theater. It's called Shocktober in Irvington. It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local filmmakers. And we'll also be interviewing each filmmaker between each screening and raffling off DVDs, Blu-rays, and gift cards to local businesses. I think I'm going to throw in a couple Twilight Zone-related prizes um, for that. All the proceeds from the event go right to the Irvington Historical Society and help support a great community here in Indianapolis. And as a bonus for Anthology listeners, you can get $1 off the price of admission by using the promo code PODCAST2 when you buy your tickets. That's PODCAST and the number 2. And if you can't make it, you can still donate to the Historical Society instead of purchasing a ticket. Uh, More information on how you can do that, and as well as a link to buy tickets uh, or make the donation, can be found at shocktoberinirvington.com. Okay, and today on the podcast, I'll be discussing People Are Alike All Over. It's the 25th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on March 25th, 1960. Uh, And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on Target Earth, a 1954 sci-fi movie based on a short story written by Paul Fairman, whose short story, Brothers Beyond the Void, was the basis for this episode of The Twilight Zone. Before I get into that, um, I would like to just apologize for the delay in getting an episode up. Uh, I'm a little bit behind, and I apologize for the wait, and I appreciate your guys' patience. Okay, so I'm going to start off, as I usually do, with an episode summary. Um, This is coming courtesy of The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Secree. Alright, and of course this is going to be spoiler-heavy, as is my review, so if you haven't seen the episode, please go back and watch it, and then come back to this episode. 
When their ship crashes on the Martian surface, Markison, the optimist who believes people are alike all over, even on Mars, is killed. Left alone is Sam Conrad, who does not Left alone is Sam Conrad, who does not share Markison's philosophy and who is terrified when he hears someone banging on the outside of the ship. His terror turns to relief, however, when he ventures out and sees that the Martians are indeed human, albeit telepathic, and that they appear extremely friendly. The next morning, the Martians present him with a surprise, a house built to look exactly like one on Earth. Pleased by this, Conrad is left alone inside, but very soon Conrad comes to the shocking realization that the, that the house has no windows and all the doors are locked. Suddenly, a wall slides open, revealing vertical bars beyond which stands, beyond which stands a crowd of gaping Martians. Conrad is in a zoo. He cries out, Marcuson, you were right. People are alike everywhere. Okay, and before I get to my review, of course, I'll go down a, a rundown of the talent involved in this episode. Starring in this episode as Sam Conrad is Roddy McDowell. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he, is, he, w- he was extremely well-known for his work throughout the Planet of the Apes franchise and in the television show. Um, he also appeared in one episode of Journey to the Unknown. Um, the episode title was The Killing Bottle, and it aired in 1969. And he also <laughs> he also appeared in 1978's The Cat from Outer Space, which that title alone makes me want to check it out. Uh, this episode also co-stars uh, Susan Oliver as Tinya. This is her only episode, The Twilight Zone. However, she did appear in one episode of Night Gallery in 1972 in the segment the Tyne and uh, the Tyne and Dance Cafe. Uh, she was also she also appeared in the original pilot episode of of uh, Star Trek called the uh, the Cage, which has some interesting similarities uh, to this episode of the Twilight Zone. And uh, she also uh, kind of an interesting bit of trivia. She lived with Jim Hutton in 1963, and uh, when she when they parted ways, she uh, began. She began focusing on her career as a pilot, which she was a very accomplished uh, pilot, which I thought was kind of interesting. R- kind of rounding out the talent for this episode is Paul Comey as Mark uh, Markison. This is his first of three episodes of The Twilight Zone. The next we'll see of him is in season two, in the episode "The Odyssey of Flight 33." And writer for this episode is Rod Serling. And as I said before, it is based on a short story by Paul Fairman. Uh, the short story is called Brothers Beyond the Void. It was uh, published first published in March 1952 in an issue of Fantastic Adventures. And uh, rounding out the talent rundown is director March uh, Mitchell. Sorry, <laughs> director Mitchell Lyson. Uh, this is his final episode of three that he directed. Uh, he, we previously saw his work in the 16 millimeter shrine and escape clause. He passed away in 1972 from coronary problems and previously or previous to his directing career, he led a pretty interesting life. He was a pioneer pilot sculptor and a home decorator. He studied architecture at Washington university in St. Louis before he moved to Chicago to work in, uh, advertising. Uh, for the Chicago Tribune, actually, and he worked. He also worked in an architecture firm, and all this while is while he was acting in his spare time. 
Um, he eventually moved to Hollywood and he failed as an actor, but he was, he was very, um, the sets that he created were very popular and, uh, uh, in, in the sets for, uh, theater productions that he made. So that brought the attention of, uh, Cecil B. DeMille who signed him, signed him on as a costume designer, um, just kind of randomly like Lyson had no, um, previous experience at all. And so he worked with DeMille up until about 1922. Then he moved on to design costumes, um, at United Artists and then continued to design costumes for, um, for a lot of his, like many of the, the cast members in the movies that he directed later in his career. Okay. So having run down the talent for this episode, um, we've come to my feelings as a first time viewer of the episode. And before I get to my actual review again, um, <laughs> uh, I just want to just mention that previously or previous to watching this episode, I knew nothing about it except the title. The title is kind of, kind of a popular title in, in Twilight Zone, at least conversations, I guess. And, uh, I was glad that I didn't know anything about it because there's some pretty interesting stuff in this episode as I'll go on to mention. So, um, going into my first time watching this episode, I was immediately interested when I saw that this episode has to do with space travel. Um, cause I really like it when the series involves space travel because it's kind of, it does what a, a lot of great Sh- movies and shows do is that it acts as kind of a, I guess a time capsule for its era. Like this episodes like this and, and stories like this show the optimism that people have or had for the American space program in the future of space. Granted it is, I mean, it's science fiction, you know, they're, they're pulling from, you know, what's hot in that day and age, I'm sure. But it's also just really kind of nice to see that, you know, the thought of men traveling to Mars isn't out of, you know, the grasp of, of imagination. Um, and it's, it's nice to see that because it's just kind of depressing, um, these days because the current state of space travel is, I mean, we're not really going to Mars or anything, but, I don't know. It uh, it's it's nice when the show deals with this uh, type of thing. And as far as the opening narration, I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite things about this episode specifically. Um, I love the way that he writes the opening narration. Serling does, um, and especially not knowing what the end of the episode was, like going into it and not knowing anything about the plot. I honestly, I just thought that Serling describing humans as animals was just cheeky and colorful descriptions on his part. And I put in my notes, like, I, I really like the way that he's describing the characters. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. Um, and then when he goes on to repeat that in the closing narration, it's such a, it's such a satisfying moment because it's a completely different tone and it's just incredibly effective. And I just loved it for that. I really did. It was, it was really cool to uh, have that experience of not realizing the deeper meaning of the words that he used in the opening narration. So throughout the first act, there's this, uh, this episode kind of has some interesting um, 
things that it plays with throughout throughout its runtime. Like the first act has a lot of of like a motif of fear of the unknown. It's like Conrad is terrified, and like that that tone or that theme that plays through with with Conrad's character, it heightens the tension um, while Conrad is fearing what's outside of the ship. And it just, it really pays off really well in that first act. And the fact that he is terrified, like he's petrified of, of what is, what could potentially be out there is so, it, it gives so much weight to Marcuson's last words. Marcuson tells him that he wants to see what he's dying for and that people are alike and, and, and people are good and it's just it just gives it such an impact and i think i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there because i haven't even talked about marcus and um and conrad really but um that's neither here nor there but speaking of marcus and Anne conrad together it's funny because they spend such a short amount of time on screen together in the grand scheme of things it's maybe the first it's the first act really and the the story paints such a clear depiction of Marcuson being the hopeful optimist and and really uh, optimistic guy, while Conrad has this cynicism that's kind of steeped in fear. Um, and while that may not be that may not be like a um, clear a clear representation on his part because Conrad's more of a logical thinker. He's, he's a science minded guy who's just fearful of the unknown, which is kind of weird in itself. But I kind of wish that that cynicism that he has, or that kind of, um, that attitude was more clearly contrasted with Marcuson's. Um, not that it really needed to be. And I don't know. I, I, I just wish that the cynicism was a little more clear because I think it would it would have paid off the ending a little better, but then on the other hand, that would be pretty tricky because cynicism in the lead character could be off putting to the audience, and Conrad is our conduit to the story, and we're with him along the way. Um, so it's kind of hard to pull that off. So I think that it reaches a nice middle ground of having Conrad be a guy who just doesn't really want to go to space or doesn't want to. He isn't going for the adventure or going for the discovery. He's going because NASA or whoever need his mind for it, um, as he says in the beginning. But I do think there's something to be said about Conrad's intuition you can almost argue that his fear that he has is more of a primal instinct, which is interesting if you view it in that point, because the entire episode is leading to him being confined to essentially a cage in a zoo. And if you view it as him having this, this primal intuition that, that he should fear the unknown or he should protect himself from, from creatures. He's not, he doesn't know. Um, there's something to be said about how, about how, uh, animalistic that is. And that kind of brings me to my next point. <laughs> this episode is so creepy on repeat viewings and is so unsettling. Um, especially the way that the Martians treat him like an animal. Um, so we've already said that he, you can construe you can construe his um, 
reaction or his his fear of of what's outside of the ship you can construe that as a primal animalistic instinct um and then you can contrast that with the way that the martians treat him and speak to him um in in uh, in particular tinya uh susan oliver's character like she says she says the li- this line to him that plays out like such a non sequitur on the first viewing but then you kind of get the deeper meaning uh throughout repeat viewings where she tells him that no one will hurt you you must believe that and at first it plays as it plays like a random non sequitur but upon repeat viewings it shows how empty and how false it is and how how it's meant to be just comforting to him uh tinia kind of sounds like someone who's reassuring a pet like if i was to reassure my cat that going to the vet was okay or whatever it just kind of has that kind of connotation to it um by the way i got a cat during the hiatus last december i don't know if i ever mentioned her on here her name's pizza roll anyway um anyway uh just that the way that she speaks to him is so chilling to me when when i think about it now because because it shows that the martians don't see him as as a person and it's it's tragic because he immediately identifies them as people he thinks that they're people and he sees them as human beings and they can't give him that courtesy or or they don't they don't show him that uh side of they don't they don't give him that benefit essentially and it's really just really disturbing and to really highlight Susan Oliver's performance even more, um, there's there's just a wealth a wealth of uh, world building in in her performance, um, like in the background, like when when the Martians are showing Conrad his home or his cage, um, you can see in the background she's not even in the center of the frame or she's not the focal point of the scene, but you can see her in the background being very withdrawn and visibly uneasy and it plays somewhat as attraction. It, it plays, it plays like she's attracted to, to Conrad at first leading and that at least led me to believe that maybe the episode would lead to some big revolt or like maybe she would lead, she and Conrad would lead a revolt against some higher, like, like, government entity that doesn't really seem like something the twilight zone would do but i don't know it or at least uh, or that the twist would would be that the people aren't really people at all or that they are actually like really disfigured aliens or maybe that um maybe that it was some kind of simulation and that she is someone from conrad's past something like that it it all led me to think these different things, but it's really just her being compassionate or being um, disheartened at the fact that they are capturing this animal from their perspective. And I thought that that played really well. And I really, I really liked the way that she um, portrayed, portrayed the character in the episode. And alongside that, Roddy McDowell has like, he, he brings just a ton of sympathy to the role of Conrad. Um, 
and it's it's obvious that he's like you said he's the audience conduit he's he's the lead character he's the one that we're on the journey with um and mcdowell just guides us through that arc really well because he goes from being this um fearful um uh, fearful reserved kind of kind of guy who doesn't want to face the unknown um to a new a newfound um to having a newfound respect and a newfound um philosophy uh that he picked up from Marcuson's dying breaths essentially um like this reassurance and this confidence that he gets in this very uh, positive boost he has all to this confusion and and fear and anger at at the end when he realizes that he is a captive um it's just it's it's really well done on his part i thought that he did a really fantastic job um and uh, and then at the end i'm kind of jumping around but at the end when he is realizing that the house is empty i thought that the the style or like the the way that they showed us this was freaking brilliant honestly um because we as the audience are watching Conrad um, as he's slowly realizing that he's trapped in the house. And it's really effective because the show turns him into an exhibit before it's revealed. We're literally watching him do these seemingly mundane activities for a few moments. Like he, he take, he get, makes it fix himself a drink. He lights a cigarette. He like walks around. He's, he's, you know, he's, doing his own thing and it's through a couple different rooms too and then finally he realizes like like you can see the confusion that he has on his face when he sees there's no window above the sink and the door doesn't open and none of the doors open and it's just it's such an it's such an effective reveal and i just i really appreciated that we became um viewers of this of this zoo exhibit for a moment at the end. I thought that was really cleverly done and really well done. Um, I also want to point out that earlier in the episode when they're in the spaceship after it's crashed, I, I love the score and, and the score is effective and, and brilliant all throughout it. But in this scene in particular, I absolutely love the music because throughout the, throughout the scene, Conrad is afraid. He's not sure what he, He's in this new situation. It's after he wakes up and, and Marcuson is, is knocked out. Um, and so he's in this new situation. He's terrified. And there's this music that plays that's very, um, how to characterize it. It's very atmospheric and it's very mystical. It really helps accentuate the unknown aspect of, of the situation that Conrad finds himself in. And I love the like music cue that, that plays once um Marcuson like wakes up um it's it's really it really plays on the the bond between these two characters because it, it feels just like a music cue to connect the two characters if that makes any sense at all I don't know anything about music um <laughs> I really like the way that at least in the first act the uh, Conrad and Marcus, Marcuson relationship. I really like how their conflicting ideologies uh, play out throughout the episode. It it reminded it reminded me a lot of what I loved so much about Lost, 
the TV show Lost, which it has its detractors now. It's kind of, you know, infamous at this point, but I loved that show from beginning to end. But in that show, the conflict between John Locke and Jack Shepard, um, it, that conflict in that show specifically reminded me of this episode or vice versa since I saw Twilight Zone second, but, um, it's a really broad connection. They're both, they're both characters who have opposing viewpoints of, of things related to their situation. And it's how they, uh, I'll say this on in Twilight Zone. It doesn't, uh, they don't, they're a little more polite about their conflicts, but anyway, and, and I'm not saying that at all to say that, that the lost writers were influenced by this episode of Twilight Zone. I'm not saying that at all because it's a really broad connection, but I guess it's just more of a reflection of my taste than anything that I connected to this, um, characterization of these two characters so much because it reminded me of things that I liked about one of my favorite TV shows. But anyway, um, uh, so, so there is that kind of un, unknown fear or fear of the unknown theme that plays out throughout, uh, most of the episode, but obviously the, the bigger kind of message of the, of the episode is that people are alike all over. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward The the episode sets up the theme in the opening scene, but it doesn't do anything. And this is kind of my, this is kind of my not issue with it. Cause I did really, I really enjoyed the episode, but one of the things I, I kind of came away from the episode thinking was that the episode sets up the idea of people being similar or people being alike all over as the title implies. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem to do anything to set up that people are bad. Um, when I hear people are like all over, I think, okay, well, this may be a story, um, about good versus evil or, or not good versus evil, but, um, are people inherently good or are they inherently bad? And, when Conrad at the end says that Marcuson is right, that people really are alike, it seems to be saying, it seems to be saying that people as in broad terms, like people are cruel creatures, but my, my hang up on it is that nothing in the episode seems to have set up that people are cruel. Um, like we have Marcuson has this, philosophy that he that he uh, posits in the in the opening scene that people are like all over meaning people you know no matter what they find uh god created people the same all over so they're all they're not going to be evil or anything but there isn't anything to really corroborate the contrast of that like conrad doesn't say like well i hope not because well i mean that would be a give away the ending, but he's not like, well, people aren't so great or people aren't so, you know, um, clear cut and good as that. So at the end, when it seemed kind of off that Conrad proclaimed that people are alike all over, and that's supposed to signify that, yeah, people are cruel to animals or people are, people are cruel creatures, but there was nothing really of substance in that to really, for me, 
um, justify that statement, if that makes any sense. Um, so yeah, I kind of thought that that was, while I did enjoy, I did enjoy the twist ending a lot. I still thought it was just a little bit, I don't want to say unearned, but it was a little bit confusing or it didn't really, um, piece together that well for me or as well for me. All right. So I have a, I have a little bit of trivia to go over for this episode. Um, as is the case with a lot of other episodes of, of the twilight zone. Um, a lot of props, uh, in this episode were, uh, from forbidden planet, especially the interior of the astronauts spaceship in, uh, in particular. Also, and this is something that happens a lot. Um, <laughs> it seems, uh, Marcuson mentions they traveled 35 million miles to Mars and the actual distance between Earth and Mars is around 36, between 36 million and 250 million miles, um, because of their elliptical orbits. But I just thought that was kind of funny. Also, uh, as far as changes from the original source story, Rod Serling made some changes. Um, in the original story, the protagonist is Marcuson, and uh, Conrad is only in the beginning of the story. Um, Serling also changed the uh, the end dialogue. Um, in the original, it says, in the original, uh, the character says, people are the same everywhere, and uh, Serling changed that to people are alike because it was uh, probably a lot better sounding, um, and not quite as flat. Moving on, uh, the short blonde Martian, the, the one that, uh, one of the, one of the few ones that actually speak, um, it, he was played by Vic Perrin, who was the control voice of the original, uh, the Outer Limits TV series. And as I said before, this episode has some basic story similarities to uh, Star Trek's original pilot episode, The Cage. Um, both feature Susan Oliver, and uh, they both involve imprisoning humans against their will and treating them as specimens, which uh, was pretty interesting. So that'll about do it for my review this week. Uh, kind of overall thoughts on the episode is that despite some minor nitpicks here and there, and when I say minor, I mean very minor. Um, just like the twist not being quite as satisfying as I wish it would have been, but it was still it was still satisfying. It just wasn't it just wasn't uh, didn't hit me as hard as it could have because I was a little hung up on the final dialogue or uh, the implications of what Conrad was saying. It's still a really strong episode, though. Um, I really enjoy it. Roddy McDowell's performance is wonderful as is uh, Susan Oliver's performance, I thought was very understated and very just really brought home um, the world building or the, the, the world really that this, that was created in this episode. And even though it's only takes up the first act, I really, really enjoyed the um, relationship between Conrad and Marcuson. I thought that they really developed that really well. Um, but what I really, what I really liked about people are like all over is that this episode shows just such a big change in Conrad's character. Um, the journey he goes on is just really harsh and, and I just, I love how Tina's affection for him, um, underpins everything and, and makes, and, and takes such a dark turn on repeat viewings and the way that he goes from being 
this somewhat cynical or or this reluctant space traveler um to this fearful sort of coward to this really hopeful optimist to finally this prisoner who is who's trapped for ever um on a foreign planet um i just i just really liked that arc for that character and the way that um the rest of the episode around it and the rest of the characters around it kind of informed to that arc. I really enjoyed that. Before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 172 of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. There were three of us in the initial phases. and We were all friends. We worked together at the same place. Nice. We all shared a love of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and uh, we would pass those DVDs around to each other, and uh, uh, based upon that love, we thought we would just sit down and improv movies, you know, on a whim after work. And so we would shut down the restaurant and uh, hop into the bar and pop in DVDs and uh, just improv riff. And we found a we were pretty happy with the stuff that we were getting, so we decided to start taking notes and writing scripts for it and. Uh, over time, it just uh, snowballed. I want to say snowballed, <laughs> but it was a it was a good snowball. Right. But uh, but yeah, it just uh, got bigger and bigger until uh, we have what we have today, and we hope it just keeps going. You can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com/ov172. All right, so for this week's bonus review, um, I picked a movie called Target Earth from 1954. It was based upon the short story, short story Deadly City by Paul W. Fairman, whose short story was the basis for uh, People Are Alike All Over. And this movie was about a, a group of people who meet up in a deserted city. I think it's, I believe it's Chicago. In deserted Chicago, when robots from Venus invade and attack humanity. And so this, I'm going to start by saying that this episode, or I'm sorry, this movie began in a really, a really cool, cool way. Like I, I, I like this type of uh, storytelling to bring you into a story. So this woman wakes up and she's wandering around this deserted city and it's just really, it's really good for atmosphere and, and mood and, uh, just setting up the tone of the story that she's wandering through just a ghost town. And throughout the episode or throughout the movie, I keep saying episode, but throughout the movie, um, it plays on some cold war fears. Uh, they, the, the city was evacuated. Um, and, and there was a fear of an attack and, and all that. Um, and what it's cool because, and I, and I enjoyed it because in the beginning, it's so it's so grounded in reality. It's it's in those opening scenes. I never would have thought that this was this science fiction movie about robots from Venus. Um, and there's they spend some time assembling kind of an ensemble of characters. Um, and I mean it. It was good. Don't get me wrong. It, it was good. It was enjoyable and everything. I just kind of struggled to pay attention to it, or I kind of struggled to 
really get into it the way that I wanted to. Um, part of that might be on me because I really expected this to be a, sci- a cheesy sci-fi action movie based on the poster. But I, I appreciated, I appreciated what they were going for and what they did because they did set up some pretty interesting character dynamics um, in those opening scenes. Um, and then we see the giant robots, which uh, uh, since it was 1954, they were pronounced robots. It, uh, I mean, it's cheesy. It's it's cheesy special effects, but it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Uh, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dog the movie for that because I thought that it it did it pretty well. It was pretty cool. Um, but there are some pretty cool um, uh, special effects of, of jets flying overhead and uh, and the way that they did it. Like there's some explosions that are a little leave a little bit to be desired, but um, for the most part, just seeing. Seeing the jets flying around, it was pretty cool. Um, overall, the movie kind of reminded me a little bit of War of the Worlds. Um, these characters, they, they kind of meet, um, and they're kind of forced into this place of hiding um, throughout a majority of the movie. Um, what I liked about it was that the movie actually focused on them instead of, uh, instead of being the cheesy sci-fi action movie that I thought it was going to be going in. It actually focused on the character dynamics and the, and the characters, um, surviving essentially. Uh, there's a whole subplot with the military dealing with the robots that I wasn't really engaged with or didn't really care for. Um, and it ends up being playing into a kind of deus ex machina kind of ending that I wasn't really too keen on. Um, plus there's this, one of the relationships in it is kind of, I don't know. It's kind of, uh, it's a dysfunctional relationship, but I didn't really buy it too much. Um, I did like one. I did really like this one piece of dialogue. Um, uh, one of the lead actress says, uh, if anything happens to Frank, I'll never forgive myself. And then the other woman in the scene looks at her and it's like, didn't you just meet him today? And I don't know, just that got a good chuckle out of me, but I did appreciate the, uh, the growth that the characters went through throughout the movie. And there's some interesting um, interpersonal conflict that arises that I was, I was pretty, I was pretty on board with and, and really interested in. So um, I guess that's about all I have to say about it. Uh, going back to the beginning where it said, where, where it said, um, where I talked about uh, the characters wandering around a deserted city. It really reminded me a little bit of uh, where is everybody? the first episode of the twilight zone. Um, so I really got a nice kick out of that. Um, but overall I think target earth was pretty enjoyable. It's, I've completely spaced mentioning this, but it's available in its, in its entirety on YouTube. So feel free to go check it out and let me know what you think of it. But, um, overall it was pretty enjoyable. It wasn't as engaging as I would have liked it to be. Um, and it wasn't as, uh, frankly, not quite as interesting as I hoped it would be once I realized that it was a more grounded thing. Um, but for the most part, it didn't have nothing, nothing that I, nothing that, um, was included in it was too much for me. Like, sure. I didn't really like the subplot involving the military. I didn't like some of the character dynamics. I didn't like some of the, uh, pacing that I went through, like the kind of slow pacing in the beginning of it. I mean, it's an only an hour and 15 minute long movie, but it's still, it felt kind of long to me. Um, even with those issues, none of those broke the movie for me. I still thought it was pretty enjoyable. So, yeah. Um, so you can check that out in its entirety on YouTube. 
And I guess that's going to just about do it for me on this week's episode of Anthology. It feels like this was a shorter episode. I was, yeah, it definitely was. I, uh, just kind of getting back in the swing of things. Like I said, I haven't had time to really, uh, devote to my podcasting duties that much, uh, with work and a bunch of other stuff going on. So, um, I'm glad to be back and I apologize again for the short delay in getting these, uh, this episode out to you. Um, I will be starting my bonus review series on uh, Black Mirror. Uh, the first episode should go up. The first episode should go up shortly after this episode, so probably a few days after this episode air posts. Um, and then I'm hoping that I can keep up with doing a week, a weekly bonus review in addition to a weekly um, main episode. So hopefully that, hopefully I can pull that off. But uh, for starters, or for for the time being, I should say. Um, next week's episode of Anthology will be episode 21, which by the way, I'm up to 20 episodes. That's, that's really awesome. I'm really excited about that because, um, I started this podcast a year ago and I didn't know if, uh, I could sustain talking by myself for (laughs) such an extended period of time. So I'm glad to be in the twenties now, but next week's episode is episode 21. And in it, I will be reviewing execution, which is episode 26 of the twilight zones first season. Um, you can also hear me talk about that episode on submitted for your approval, a twilight zone podcast. That's a friend of the show. Brandon Cruz hosts on a uh, But yeah, uh, you can hear me talk about that in episode 26 of that podcast. And next week's bonus review is going to be the 1979 time travel movie time after time, which I've never seen. And I'm really excited to watch it because it is, it sounds like it's, it's always been on my radar and I'm glad that I finally, I'm finally going to get to watch it. So having said all that, once again, you guys can, uh, find more of the podcast at anthologypod.com and thank you guys for listening. Also, I'm thinking about maybe making like a Facebook group for it, um, for the podcast. Let me know if you guys would be interested in that. Maybe do like episode discussions on, on there. I don't know. I did that for obsessive viewer and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, So I'm thinking that I may do that for Anthology. So let me know what you guys think. And yeah, that's about it. And thank you guys for listening. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. 
Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.